Chapter thirty three, part two of The Betrothed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni. Chapter thirty three, part two. Towards evening, he discovered his own village. At this sight, though he must have been prepared for it, he felt his heart began to beat violently. He was at once assailed by a host of mournful recollections and presentiments. He seemed to hear ringing in his ears those inauspicious tolls of the bell, which had, as it were, accompanied and followed him in his flight from the village, and at the same time, he heard, so to say, the death-like silence which actually reigned around. He experienced still stronger agitation on entering the churchyard, and worse still awaited him at the end of his walk, for the spot he had fixed upon as his resting place was the dwelling which he had once been accustomed to call Lucia's cottage. Now it could not be at the best more than Agnes's, and the only favor he begged of heaven was that he might find her living and in health, and in this cottage he proposed asking for a bed, rightly conjecturing that his own would no longer be a place of abode for anything but rats and polecats. To reach that point, therefore, without passing through the village, he took a little by-path that ran behind it the very one along which he had gone in good company on that notorious night when he tried to surprise the curate. About halfway stood on one side his own house, and on the other his vineyard, so that he could enter both for a moment in passing to see a little how his own affairs were going on. He looked forward as he pursued his way anxious, and at the same time afraid to meet with anyone. And after a few paces he saw a man seated in his shirt on the ground, resting his back against a hedge of jessamine, in the attitude of an idiot. And from this, and afterwards from his countenance, he thought it was that poor simpleton Gervais, who had gone as the second witness in his ill-fated expedition but going a little nearer, he perceived that it was instead the sprightly Tonio, who had brought his brother with him on that occasion, the contagion robbing him at once of mental as well as bodily vigor, had developed in his look and every action the slight and veiled germ of likeness which he bore to his half-witted brother. Oh, Tonio! said Renzo, stopping before him. Is it you? Tonio raised his eyes, without moving his head. Tonio, don't you know me? Whoever has got it, has got it, answered Tonio, gazing at him with open mouth. It's on you, eh? Poor Tonio, but don't you know me again? 
Whoever has got it, has got it, replied he with a kind of idiotic smile. Seeing he could draw nothing further from him, Renzo pursued his way, still more disconsolate. Suddenly he saw, turning the corner and advancing toward him, a black object which he quickly recognized as Don Abandio. He walked slowly, carrying his stick like one who was alternately carried by it, and the nearer he approached, the more plainly might it be discerned in his pale and emaciated countenance, and in every look, that he, too, had to pass through his share of the storm. He looked askance at Renzo, it seemed, and it did not seem like him. There was something like a stranger in his dress, but it was a stranger from the territory of Bergamo. It is he and nobody else, said he to himself, raising his hands to heaven with a motion of dissatisfied surprise, and the staff he carried in his right hand suddenly checked in its passage through the air, and his poor arms might be seen shaking in his sleeves, where once there was scarcely room for them. Renzo hastened to meet him and made a low reverence, for although they had quitted each other in the way the reader knows, he was always, nevertheless, his curate. "'Are you here? You?' exclaimed the latter. "'I am indeed, as you see. Do you know anything of Lucia?' "'What do you suppose I can know? I know nothing. She's at Milan, if she's still in this world, but you and Agnes, is she alive?' "'She may be, but who do you suppose can tell? She's not here, but where is she?' She's gone to live in Valsassana, among her relations at Pesturo. You know, for they say, the plague doesn't make the havoc there it does here. But you, I say. Oh, I'm very sorry. And Father Cristoforo? He's been gone for some time. But I know that. They wrote and told me so much. But I want to know if he hasn't yet returned to these parts. Nay, they've heard nothing farther about him. But you, I'm very sorry to hear this, too. But you, I say, what, for heaven's sakes, are you coming to do in this part of the world? Don't you know about that affair of your apprehension? What does it matter? They've something else to think about. I was determined to come for once and see about my affairs. And isn't it well enough known? What would you see about, I wonder? For now there's no longer anybody or anything, and it is wise of you, with that business of your apprehension, to come hither exactly to your own village, into the wolf's very mouth? Do as an old man advises you, who is obliged to have more judgment than you, and who speaks from the love he bears you, buckle your shoes well, and set off before anyone sees you to where you came from. And if you've been seen already, return only the more quickly. Do you think that this is the air for you? Don't you know they've been to look for you? That they've ransacked everything and turned all upside down? 
I know it too well, the scoundrels. But then, but if I tell you I don't care, and is that fellow alive yet? Is he here? I tell you nobody's here. I tell you you mustn't think about things here. I tell you, I ask if he's here. Oh, sacred heaven, speak more quietly. Is it possible you've all that fieriness about you after so many things have happened? Is he here or is he not? Well, well, he's not here. But the plague, my son, the plague, who would go traveling about in such times as these? If there was nothing else but the plague in this world, I mean for myself, I've had it and am free. Indeed, indeed, what news is this? When one has escaped a danger of this sort, seems to me he should thank heaven, and, and I do so. And not go look for others, I say. Do as I advise. You've had it too, Signor Curate, if I mistake not. I had it, obstinate and bad enough it was. I'm here by miracle. I need only say it has left me in the state you see. Now I had just need of a little quiet to set me to rights again. I was beginning to be a little better. The name of heaven, what have you come to do here? Go back. You're always at me with that go back. As for going back, I have reasons enough for not stirring. You say, what do you come for? What do you come for? I've come home. Home. Tell me, are many dead here? Alas, alas, exclaimed Don Abandio, and beginning with Perpetua, he entered upon a long enumeration of individuals and entire families. Renzo had certainly expected something of the kind, but on hearing so many names of acquaintances, friends and relatives, he had lost his parents many years before. He stood overcome with grief, his head hung down, and only exclaiming from time to time, Poor fellow, poor girl, poor creatures. You see, continued Don Abandio, and it isn't yet over. If those who are left don't use their senses this time and drive the whims out of their brains, there's nothing for it but the end of the world. Don't be afraid. I have no intentions of stopping here. Ah, oh, thank heaven. You at last understand, and you'd better make up your mind to return. Don't trouble yourself about that. What? Didn't you once want to do something more foolish than this, even? Never mind me, I say. That is my business. I'm more than seven years old. I hope, at any rate, you won't tell anybody you've seen me. You are a priest. I am one of your flock. You won't betray me? I understand, said Don Abandio, sighing pettishly. I understand. You would ruin yourself and me, too. You haven't gone through enough already, I suppose. And I haven't gone through enough either. I understand. I understand. And continuing to mutter these last words between his teeth, he again resumed his way. 
Renzo stood there, chagrined and discontented, thinking where he could find a lodging. In the funeral list recounted by Donabondio, there was a family of peasants who had been all swept off by the pestilence, excepting one youth, about Renzo's age, who had been his companion from infancy. The house was out of the village, a very little way off. Hither he determined to bend his steps and ask for a night's lodging. He had nearly reached his own vineyard, and was soon able to infer from the outside in what state it was. Not a single tree, not a single leaf, which he had left there, was visible above the wall. If anything blossomed there, it was all what had grown during his absence. He went up to the opening. Of a gate there was no longer the least sign. He cast a glance around. Poor vineyard! For two successive winters, the people of the neighborhood had gone to chop firewood in the garden of that poor fellow, as they used to say. Vines, mulberry trees, fruits of every kind had all been rudely torn up or cut down to the trunk. Vestiges, however, of former cultivation still appeared. Young shoots in broken lines, which retained, nevertheless, traces of their now desolated rows. Here and there stumps and sprouts of mulberry, fig, peach, cherry, and plum trees. But even these seemed overwhelmed and choked by a fresh, varied, and luxuriant progeny, born and reared without the help of man. There was a thick mass of nettles, ferns, tares, dog-grass, rye-grass, wild oats, green amaranths, succory, wild sorrel, foxglove, and other similar plants. All those, I mean, which the peasant of every country has included in one large class at his pleasure, denominating them weeds. There was a medley of stalks, each trying to outtop the others in the air, or rivaling its fellow in length upon the ground, aiming, in short, to secure for itself the post of honor in every direction. A mixture of leaves, flowers, and fruit, of a hundred colors, forms, and sizes. Ears of corn, Indian corn, tufts, bunches, and heads of white, yellow, red, and blue. In the midst of this medley, other, taller and more graceful, though not, for the most part, more valuable plants, were prominently conspicuous. The Turkish vine soared above all the rest with its long and reddish branches, its large and magnificent dark green leaves, some already fringed with purple at the top, and its bending clusters of grapes, adorned below with berries of bluish-gray tinge, higher up of a purple hue than green, and at the very top with whitish little flowers. There was also the bearded yew, with its large rough leaves, down to the ground, the stem rising perpendicularly to the sky, and the long pendant branches scattered, and, as it were, bespangled with bright yellow blossoms. Thistles, too, 
with rough and prickly leaves and calyxes from which issued little tufts of white or purple flowers, or else light silvery plumes which were quickly swept away by the breeze. Here a little bunch of bindweed, climbing up and twining around fresh suckers from a mulberry tree, had entirely covered them with its pendant leaves, which pointed to the ground and adorned them at the top with its white and delicate little bells. There a red-berried bryony had twisted itself among the new shoots of a vine, which, seeking in vain a firmer support, had reciprocally entwined its tendrils around its companion, and mingling their feeble stalks, and their not very dissimilar leaves, they mutually drew each other upward, as often happens with the weak, who take one another for their stay. The bramble intruded everywhere. It stretched from one bough to another. Now, mounting and again turning downward, it bent the branches or straightened them, according as it happened. And crossing before the very threshold seemed as if it were placed there to dispute the passage even with the owner. But he had no heart to enter such a vineyard, and probably did not stand as long looking at it as we have taken to make this little sketch. He went forward. A little way off stood his cottage. He passed through the garden, trampling underfoot by hundreds the intrusive visitors, with which, like the vineyard, it was peopled and overgrown. He just set foot within the threshold of one of the rooms on the ground floor. At the sound of his footsteps, and on his looking in, there was a hubbub, a scampering to and fro of rats, a rush under the rubbish that covered the whole floor. It was the relics of the German soldiers' beds. He raised his eyes and looked round upon the walls. They were stripped of plaster, filthy, blackened with smoke. He raised them to the ceiling, a mass of cobwebs. Nothing else was to be seen. He took his departure, too, from this desolate scene, twining his fingers in his hair, returned through the garden, retracing the path he had himself made a moment before, took another little lane to the left, which led into the fields, and without seeing or hearing a living creature, arrived close to the house he had designed as his place of lodging. It was already evening. His friend was seated outside the door on a small wooden bench, his arms crossed on his breast, and his eyes fixed upon the sky like a man bewildered by misfortunes and rendered savage by long solitude. Hearing a footstep, he turned round, looked who was coming, and to what he fancied he saw in the twilight, between the leaves and branches, cried in a loud voice as he stood up and raised both his hands, Is there nobody but me? Didn't I do enough yesterday? Let me alone a little, for that, 
too, will be a work of charity. Renzo, not knowing what this meant, replied to him, calling him by name. Renzo, he said in a tone of at once exclamation and interrogation. Myself, said Renzo, and they hastened to meet each other. Is it really you, said his friend, when they were near? Oh, how glad I am to see you! Who would have thought it? I took you for Paolin de Morte, who's always coming to torment me to go and bury someone. Do you know I am left alone? Alone, alone as a hermit. I know it too well, said Renzo. And interchanging in this manner, and crowding upon one another welcomings and questions and answers, they went into the house together. Here, without interrupting the conversation, his friend busied himself in doing some little honor to his guest, as best he could on so sudden a warning, and in times like those. He set some water on the fire and began to make the polenta, but soon gave up the pestle to Renzo that he might proceed with the mixing, and went out, saying, I'm all by myself, you see, all by myself. By and by, he returned with a small pail of milk, a little salt meat, a couple of cream cheeses, and some figs and peaches. And all being ready, and the polenta poured out upon the trencher, they sat down to table, mutually thanking each other, one for the visit, the other for the reception he met with. And after an absence of nearly two years, they suddenly discovered that they were much greater friends than they ever thought they were when they saw each other almost every day. For, as the manuscript here remarks, events had occurred to both which make one feel what a cordial to the heart is kindly feeling, both that which one experiences oneself and that which one meets with in others. True, no one could supply the place of Agnes to Renzo, nor console him for her absence not only on account of the old and special affection he entertained for her, but also because, among the things he was anxious to clear up, one there was of which she alone possessed the key. He stood for a moment in doubt whether he should not first go in search of her, since he was so short a distance off. But considering that she would know nothing of Lucia's health, he kept to his first intention of going at once to assure himself of this, to confront the one great trial, and afterwards to bring the news to her mother. Even from his friend, however, he learnt many things of which he was ignorant, and gained some light on many points with which he was but partially acquainted, both about Lucia's circumstances the prosecutions instituted against himself, and Don Rodrigo's departure thence, followed by his whole suit, since which time he had not been seen in the neighborhood, in short, about all the intricate circumstances of the whole affair. He learnt also, and to him it was an acquisition of no little importance, 
to pronounce properly the name of Don Ferrante's family. Agnes, indeed, had written it to him by her secretary, but heaven knows how it was written, and the Bergamasican interpreter had read it in such a way, had given him such a word, that had he gone with it to seek direction to his house in Milan, he would probably have found no one who could have conjectured for whom he was making inquiry. Yet this was the only clue he possessed that could put him in the way of learning tidings of Lucia. As to justice, he was even more and more convinced that this was a hazard remote enough not to give him much concern. The Signor Podesta had died of the plague. Who knew when a substitute would be appointed? The greater part of the bailiffs were carried off, and those that remained had something else to do than look after old matters. He also related to his friend the vicissitudes he had undergone, and heard in exchange a hundred stories about the passage of the army, the plague, the poisoners, and other wonderful matters. They're miserable things, said his friend, accompanying Renzo into a little room, which the contagion had emptied of occupants, things which we never could have thought to see, and after which we can never expect to be merry again all our lives. But nevertheless, it is a relief to speak of them to one's friends. By break of day, they were both downstairs, Renzo equipped for his journey with his girdle hidden under his doublet, and the large knife in his pocket, but otherwise light and unencumbered, having left his little bundle in the care of his host. If all goes well with me, he said, if I find her alive, if enough. I'll come back here. I'll run over Pasturo to carry the good news to poor Agnes, and then, and then, but if by ill luck, by ill luck, which God forbid, then I don't know what I shall do. I don't know where I shall go. Only assuredly, you will never see me again in these parts." And as he said so, standing in the doorway which led into the fields, he cast his eyes around and contemplated with a mixed feeling of tenderness and bitter grief the sun rising of his own country, which he had not seen for so long a time. His friend comforted him with bright hopes and prognostinations and made him take with him some little store of provision for that day. Then, accompanying him a mile or two on his way, he took his leave with renewed good wishes. Renzo pursued his way deliberately and easily, as all he cared for was to reach the vicinity of Milan that day, so that he might enter next morning, early and immediately begin his search. The journey was performed without accident, nor was there anything which particularly attracted his attention, except the usual spectacles of misery and sorrow. 
He stopped in due time, as he had done the day before, in a grove to refresh himself and take breath. Passing through Monza, before an open shop where bread was displayed for sale, he asked for two loaves that he might not be totally unprovided for under any circumstances. The shopkeeper, beckoning him not to enter, held out to him, on a little shove, a small basin containing vinegar and water, into which he desired him to drop the money in payment. He did so, and then the two loaves were handed out to him, one after another, with a pair of tongs, and deposited by Renzo, one in each pocket. Towards evening he arrived at Greco, without, however, knowing its name, but by the help of some little recollection of the places which he retained from his former journey, and his calculation of the distance he had already come from Monza, he guessed that he must be tolerably near the city, and therefore left the high road and turned into the fields in search of some cascanato where he might pass the night, for with inns he was determined not to meddle. He found more than he looked for, for seeing a gap in a hedge which surrounded the yard of a cow-house, he resolved at any rate to enter. No one was there. He saw in one corner a large shed with hay piled up beneath it, and against this a ladder was reared. He once more looked around, and then, mounting at a venture, laid himself down to pass the night there, and quickly fell asleep not to awake till morning. When he awoke, he crawled towards the edge of this great bed, put his head out, and seeing no one, descended as he had gone up, went out where he had come in, pursued his way through little by-paths, taking the cathedral for his polar star, and after a short walk came out under the walls of Milan, between the Porta Orientale and the Porta Nuova, and rather nearer to the latter. End of chapter 33, part 2